Thanks for listening to the GCC Sermon Podcast. We'd love to meet you for worship on Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visit georgetownchristian.org for more info. Good morning, Georgetown Christian. Hey, I would invite you guys to grab a Bible, and now's a great time to do it, because if you're close to the front, you may have to get under that chair and behind it and send for a courier and call in the Coast Guard, and they're under those chairs. And if you brought one with you, great. You know your way around yours, great. If you've done this a long time, then you're already a pro, but if you're new at opening a Bible, let's open it together. We're going to go to Luke chapter 19. If you just want to go to the, you know, glossaries right in front, you can go there. But uh, this is a little trick I learned. We're going to open it halfway. You'll probably be in Psalms. And then we're going to take this half over here. You're going to open it halfway again. I got these little cheater tabs because I'm a cheater. But open this side halfway again. You should land somewhere like in Matthew or Mark or Luke. And those are gospels. Those are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus and his ministry. So we're going to turn to Luke chapter 19. So just keep turning until you get to Luke 19. And while you're turning there, I want <clears throat> to thank all of you who were involved in making this stage so nice and tidy because our cables like run under it now, but also that got our projector up. Thanks be to God. We can see on the big screen again. We'll have, I think we'll have my pointer TV back maybe next week, but I just so much appreciate all of the effort that went into making all that happen. Uh, we had a few questions about um, some, I guess, at least five of you missed uh, the greeting time. And I want to just share with you the deep grief that I am walking through as we say goodbye to our greeting time. If it were my decision, our greeting time would be 10,586 years long. I would hug every single person. I would find out how your week was and how you expect the next week to be. I would know how your mother and father are doing. Also, your aunts and uncles and all of your kids how your hopes are looking for the rest of the year. I would know all of that. But if you haven't been a guest recently in a church, I'd invite you to try that out. It's horrifying when they're like, turn to your neighbor and make them want to die. <laughs> it's really basically what it should be called. Um, so we say goodbye to that, and that means that we just have to do some basic training. Um, I need a lot of basic training, um, a lot. And uh, we're just going to do a basic training called the first minute after worship is over, greet someone you don't know. And then in the second through the, for me, 30,000 minutes after that, all of the rest of those minutes, then you can follow up with all the people that you do know. And you can find out how they are and how their family is. And you can get all those dots connected that some of you want to connect. Uh, so goodbye, greeting time. Uh, hello, a worship experience that is exclusively aimed in this direction. If you just analyze this with me for 30 seconds, the worship time, it's aimed vertically. It's aimed, it's, we're magnifying the Lord. And then you think about communion time. And then again, we're magnifying the Lord, his work, life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And you think about this time with the word, we're uh, again in this direction as he through, um, you guys, my job was done by a mule in the Old Testament. So don't think this is fancy. There's something spiritual that happens, maybe even on the level of miraculous, where he brings to life his living and active word. So also during the preaching time, that living and active word is like transforming our 
hearts into his likeness. And then we wrap up at the end with a song and a prayer. Again, uh, that's a vertical in nature. So our greeting time, there you have my theology for sayonara greeting time. And you can argue with Jesus about that. So thank you for turning to Luke uh, chapter 19. Uh, We've been in this series called First. We've been in this series called First in our our first series, the very first sermon in our first series, we recall uh, that Haggai was dealing with the Israelites who were not willing to be the people God wanted them to be. And we're in this series because maybe not you, maybe not me, no, definitely me, but those Israelites, they definitely were not being the people God wanted them to be. So he sent Haggai the prophet to say, you are excuse-making selfish people who have not done what I asked, which was simply to build the temple. Uh, So the Lord spoke to them through Haggai, and the bottom line for us in week one, the bottom line for Haggai was that you need to carefully consider your ways. Like weigh out, give careful thought to the decisions you're making and the motives behind them. The temple wasn't rebuilt because they were busy with rebuilding their homes. That was the problem. So that was week one. And then week two, we rediscovered what it means to to give God our first fruits. And we discovered, and I'll just remind you again today, do not feel the sense of obligation. In fact, we're not passing the plate. You can't give money. So if you're a guest today, you can't give money. Because we learned that although we should give God our first fruits, because our paycheck, our contracts, our projects that are complete, all of the things that go well in our life that bring us blessing primarily through money, we give back to God the first fruits because everything we have comes from the Lord. Every single nickel penny and dime. It comes from the Lord. So we just give back to him what later in the New Testament we discovered. Paul says we have decided in our hearts to give cheerfully. That's why as a guest you can't give today because you haven't decided in your heart. That's something that happens before you get here. And Paul goes on to say you cannot do it under compulsion. See, now you're compelled because I'm talking about giving. You're like, oh, gosh, I should give. Well, you shouldn't give. It's against the Bible, so don't give today. But if you come back another time and you've decided in your heart what to give, you can do that in the tray or at slash giving at our website. Then last week, we traced the Sabbath from the Old Covenant all the way through the New Covenant, and we saw how what was a seventh-day rest has been transformed by this one singular event around which all of history is organized, and that is the cross event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So that has been transformed into what is called the Lord's Day. You're here. We're all here. This is the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week, and we give him the first day of the week. So we, number one, consider carefully our ways. Number two, we we give him the first fruits that he blesses us with. And number three, we give him the first day of the week. And on that first day, because we're a restoration movement church, we're a Stone Campbell movement. We're not a denomination. We're an independent church who is trying our very best by God's grace to restore the ideals of the New Testament, to make 
this assembled body look as much like the New Testament pattern as we can. And so as we go examine, we saw that in the New Testament, the church gathered on the first day. Scripture shows it. History corroborates it. Here we are. And that's why our worship service looks now like what theirs did. Now, they did some greeting with a holy kiss. So some of you guys want to look into that. Uh, my holy kisses go nowhere near my lips, just so you know. They're, they're back here, and it should look a lot like an Italian. Uh, whew, let's not get carried away. Oh, my hands are sweating thinking about that. Hot dang. I'm good with a hug, guys. So uh, we discovered that the early church would celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by remembering that through the Lord's Supper on the first day. They would have the teaching of the word. They would have an offering that they had decided in advance to give cheerfully. And they would have songs, praise and worship. It's believed that they sang a lot of psalms, uh, but we can't exclusively say that's all they sang because those were Jewish. So we don't know. We don't know all the songs they sang, but we are trying to do what they did and thereby to uh, the point of the whole series, the point of uh, structuring our church like we see the pattern in the New Testament is to become what Matthew says in chapter 6. He's just done this great teaching series called Beatitudes, and he is now summarizing. He says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all of these things, he summarizes all of it, all of these things will be added to you. So at the beginning of the year, the question for the believer is, how do all of these things get added to me? And it's very difficult because I can't be in a Bible study every day of my life. And I'm the preacher. So I know that you also can't be in a Bible study every day of your life. So practically speaking, how do we order our lives in such a way that we are putting the kingdom first? And so today we discover two habits, two habits for kingdom first living. Two habits for kingdom first living. And that's why we start in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Before we begin, can I pray? <clears throat> Father, would you illuminate your word? Would you transform our hearts? For your glory and for our good, in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're in verse 1. He entered into Jericho. This is Jesus. And he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And God bless you if you got to be in kids' church as a kid like me. This was the greatest story. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus. But on account of the crowd, he could not see, because if you were in kids' church, he was a who? He was a wee little man. We had a lot of people grow up in church. Thank God for the people who taught you this story, because you already know where this whole thing goes. Because he was small in stature. He was a wee fella. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, you know the song, Zacchaeus, you come down. You guys already know what's going on. You hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. 
And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he's also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So our first of two habits for kingdom-first living is to repent continually. Can you guys say it with me? Repent continually. The first habit of kingdom living in our two today. Zacchaeus repents. What is Zacchaeus repenting of? Well, it's evident from the appends of the community, and you can look in your Bibles or on this screen, at verse 7, it's evident that the community does not like him, and likely the reason is that he was a chief tax collector, probably collecting taxes from other tax collectors, probably also, and this would be a common practice for that culture, that tax collector would have the Roman tax levied, the provincial tax levied, and then he would have his own tax collector fee on top of that. And then he would have the chief tax collector fee on top of that. And you thought taxes were bad in America. I'm not arguing they're bad. But that sounds horrible. The dude's living in your town. He's getting rich right in front of your face. Ugh, I really don't like this guy. This guy is Zacchaeus. That's why they all grumbled, likely. We're just trying to find from the cultural context of this passage, why is it that they would have grumbled? And that is, I think, a logical leap, although it does not say it here in Scripture. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So he was known somehow for being a sinner. Now Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner. When he encountered Jesus, he received him joyfully. He did not try to defend himself and say, I have all these reasons and all the excuses and all of the reasons that the Israelites were giving to Haggai and to the Lord. Zacchaeus received Jesus openly. He, he reordered his priorities to match the king of kings' priorities. He, he understood that as he comes under the, under the leadership of a Lord that his priorities need to line up with the Lord's priorities. Zacchaeus was not in this for fire insurance. That's looking for a savior. Zacchaeus reordered his life to the priorities of the king and his kingdom immediately. Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner. Finding Jesus, this guy who's a He's a teacher that accepts someone like him, someone who's wrought through with sin. The whole community knows this man is full of sin. And so he's looking for the only one whom we can trust. When we understand, when we come to the point to know that we cannot handle it, that something has to be done with our sin, we find Jesus, just like Zacchaeus did. This is verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because, well, he was a wee little man. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree because he knew he was about to pass that way. Now, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but if you want to brag, go ahead. How many of you have climbed a tree in the past, I don't know, year? How many of you have climbed a tree? 
Okay, how, now keep them up. How many of you have climbed a tree to do something other than eliminate a limb or the tree itself? All right, two. So that's or three. That's even more than first service by three. So uh, that's a lot uh, given. But now imagine that you're uh, the uh, suit and tie, fancy car, commute to Louisville, work really high up in a building kind of guy. Imagine you're the chief tax collector. It's awesome that you climbed a tree. But what are the chances that if you were the chief tax collector, you would be caught climbing a tree? Not likely. In fact, very unlikely. You have people that climb trees. You're not climbing trees. You have people for that. But Zacchaeus needed more than anything to connect his life to that one life that he had heard could change everything. And so he climbed up in a tree in spite of the fact that he was a rich man, that he was the chief tax collector. So I wonder if in our own lives is, is finding Jesus, and maybe you've already made the decision, maybe you've already entered the baptistry, you've been buried in death, buried under the water with Christ in his death and raised to new life. But I wonder, after that is over, how regularly repent continually, how regularly you and I are reorienting our priorities to kingdom priorities. I wonder if a practical application would help. I wonder when you and I wake up, what are the first words out of your mouth? I mean, if it's a Monday, I've got a guess for some of us. It's not a word, it's just... Or something along those lines. I wonder what the first app you launch on your phone is. There's a couple of big games today. I, for one, won't be awake for the end of the second one. No chance. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to want to load a specific app. But if we're reorienting our lives to the king of the kingdom so that our lives are seeking first the kingdom, then it matters our first words, it matters our first app, it matters our first thoughts, because we want to reorient them to the priorities of the king. I wonder if you've structured your week, your calendar, your personal discretionary time such that it supports, it upholds and promotes the mission of the person you say is the Lord of your life. It's a very simple evaluation, that's why in week one, we said, consider carefully your ways. Because when we don't, we wind up in a bit of a mess. We veer off track. See, repenting reorients us to the king and his priorities. Repenting says, my way was wrong and your way is right. Repenting means we change our behavior. It's not just a brain trick. Look at Zacchaeus' example. This is verse... Eight. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. His behavior is immediately changed. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I, in the future, will continuously change my behavior. <laughs> Repentance means that we change our behavior. A policeman was he was called, and he arrived on the scene to what he heard he would see, and that is a woman standing in the middle of the highway. 
There she stands. And as the officer approaches her very carefully, because this is crazy, and says, ma'am, is everything okay? Yeah, everything's okay. How do you get to the hospital? And he said, you just keep standing right there. You'll get to the hospital. See, repentance requires that we change our behavior. We, something has to be completely reoriented in our lives to match kingdom priorities instead of personal priorities. We're changing them to become in line with kingdom values. Um, Matthew says it this way. And I think this might be wrong. So if you guys want to turn around and try to find it and Google it, I have Matthew 3, 5. Maybe it's 5, 3. Uh, maybe it's 8. I don't know. Uh, Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. I'm inclined to think it's when John is preaching. So it really probably needs to be 3 somewhere. Is it 3, 8? You can raise your hand if you find it and we'll correct it. Because on the screen, I heard it was wrong. Uh, it, you guys, uh, if you have kids, and a lot of us do, um, if you have kids, the kids will help you see what your priorities are. They are masters at telling our priorities. A Sunday school teacher, after shushing them, says, do you guys understand why it's important to be quiet in church? Little Susie in the front row says, because people are sleeping? <laughs> our kids can tell what our priorities are. Our spouses can tell. Our brothers and sisters can tell. And if you're, is, have you got it? It's what is it? Matthew 3, 8. Thank you, Ms. Deaton. Thank you, thank you. If, uh, if our kids can tell, if our spouse can tell, if maybe our close friends can tell, but we can't tell, I would argue that this points to something that God already knew and instituted, and that is a body of believers that we call brothers and sisters. And it's why Matthew, our student pastor, mentioned that when you have decided you're a follower of Jesus, he is my Lord and my Savior, then the next step according to Scripture, the expectation outlined all the way through Scripture and the early and subsequent history of the church is that you place yourself in a body. That body is the body of Christ. I would argue something almost Catholic, and that is that you just can't be saved outside of that. You and I are welcome to have a big, long conversation about it. But it'll be really short when you have to find the verse where you never place yourself in a body. Because within that body, our brothers and sisters can say, oh man, it looks like those priorities are just a little bit out of order. It's like every time we have men's Bible study, you get sick. And every time we have women's Bible study, you try a new recipe. And every time we have men's breakfast, you have sleep-in day. Dude, that's like one time a month. Just wake up and go to church. You have men's breakfast, and you know what? Your brothers will grow in relationship with you. This is the body, and we're supposed to grow together. As Christians, we want to live kingdom-first lives, and to do so, we keep on repenting. We repent continually. And I said there's two habits. So our second habit, our second habit is to live by the Spirit. That is to, to walk in the Spirit. So walking in the Bible is often a reference to daily living. Let's turn to Galatians together. If you've already got Luke, you just want to go this way a lot. Luke, John, 
Acts, Rome, there's some paper, Romans, and well, look at that. I told you I was a cheater, it was right there in Galatians. So where your paper falls out, you know, I hope yours is Galatians. And you want to be in chapter 5, which is super close to Ephesians. And if you're in Philippians, you want to turn backwards the other way, you want to go to Galatians chapter 5. Walking in the Bible is like a reference to daily living. The psalmist in the very first psalm says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. It doesn't mean that there's a counsel that he walks into. It means he lives a daily life in such a way that he's living in wickedness. Our Christian walk, it's, it's lived in a way that we're walking towards maturity in Jesus Christ. It is normal. It is normal for believers to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to say that a dozen times. I'm going to have you say it with me at some point. But let me read from uh, Galatians chapter 5, 25. This is the King James. Maybe you memorized it this way. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Maybe you have a new living. Following the Spirit's lead in every part of our lives. Now, it is not normal. It, it, I'm sorry. It is normal for a Christian to walk in the Spirit. It is not normal to, in February, go jump in a frozen lake. But I, uh, I wear this t-shirt today because there are a bunch of not normal people here. And they're all not normal because of a person we together dearly love. And her name is Hannah. And if you know Buddy Hannah, or if you know Doug or Heather, her parents, or Faith, her sister, or if you know Grandma and Grandpa, Bob and Brenda Jones, or if you know her aunt and uncle, Alan and Amy Needham, then you know that Hannah is a precious person who has some needs that you and I probably don't have. And Hannah loves to participate in the Special Olympics. She is better at bowling than you are, and than I am. She is definitely going to beat you. Don't take her bet. She is great at bowling. She also enjoys softball. And so because we love Hannah, we all decide that this not normal thing, jump in a frozen lake, or um, like some of us, walk up to here in a frozen lake, I mean right about here. You guys understand. Just walk into a frozen lake a little bit because we love Hannah and we want to support the cause of Special Olympics on behalf of Hannah. So we're willing to do something not normal to make it our normal on behalf of someone else. We're willing, just let that sink in, we're willing to be to take what was not normal and to make it normal on behalf of someone else. Christians, it is normal for us to walk in the Spirit. Now, if I haven't made you uncomfortable enough, everybody pull out your tambourines and wall around on the floor and have a convulsion. I'm kidding. That is not, that is not what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, to live life in the Spirit. That is a perversion of what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. So let's just discover what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. Paul, this is in Galatians chapter 5. Paul is, I think you remember from last week, the same issue in Colossae. These churches in Galatia, these churches were struggling because they had come to Christ. They would placed their faith in Him. They declared that it is by His work on the cross alone that we get His righteousness he gets our sin, just as Doug said, the scandal of grace. So we get his righteousness, he gets our sin. That is all it is. We place our faith in that act alone. But here's what was happening in the churches of Galatia. 
there were some people called the Judaizers. And they came along, and instead of just saying, this is the simple gospel, the king has set you free by his action alone. And you trust in his power to do what you can't do. He does it for you. But some other guys came along, they're called the Judaizers, and they decided that if you cut certain parts of your body off, or if you obeyed all these other kinds of Mosaic laws, that you could somehow add to that salvation. You could somehow improve upon and become an extra, extra spiritual Christian. And so Paul's writing in response to that, and his instruction is coming to teach these Galatians how to go from what, you know, they were just kind of in the middle. They were just kind of, man, I got... I got the, the Savior part, and I'm, I'm struggling with the Lord part. And look, I found a Lord. There's someone who says that I can be extra spiritual. I want to be more like Jesus. Make me extra spiritual. And they said, wrongly, go do all these things that you'll see in the Old Covenant. And what Paul says is lean into this life that is normal for a Christian. And that is to walk in, to live in, to walk in step with the Spirit. So I'm picking this up in verse 16. And we won't read the whole block together because I want to go verse by verse. In verse 16, Paul says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. I want to ask for a show of hands. Okay, well, everybody put your hand up. Everybody put your hand up. I would like to uh, not be doing what my sinful nature craves. Okay, you can put them down. Because none of us really wants to be doing what our sinful nature craves. We know that that removes us from Jesus. It makes it look less like our king. We want to look more like him. So when you're hiking through the woods and you want to be home for dinner, do you follow the trail? Or do you start bushwhacking off into don't know where land? Or when you want to go on a road trip to the beach, and I mean a warm beach, when you want to go on a road trip to the beach, do you not put it into a GPS and then listen to where the GPS says to turn and where to go? Uh, friends, I do these things. I think that you do very similar things. Likewise, it is normal for a Christian to allow the Spirit to lead us. <clears throat> you know how to turn on a GPS. You know how to follow a trail through the woods. It is just as simple to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. I'll just give you a few basic questions. We're going to learn more about how to do it. But a few basic questions. Is what you're doing, is it loving? Is it showing mercy? Is it putting someone else's needs ahead of your own? Super basic litmus test. Now, how many of you have ever, keep those hands down, no nudging the spouse. How many have you ever heard someone remain willfully and completely confused about how to do something and thereby removing themselves from the opportunity to help with the thing. For instance, how many of you have ever seen at Christmas or Thanksgiving or a family birthday or some other large dinner, someone say, I sure would love to help you in the kitchen. I just don't know what I'm doing in there. How many of you on a school project have had someone say, golly, that sure does look good. I just can't draw. I can't color. I can't type. My hands are broke until I don't want them to be broke. How many of you experienced at work someone say, 
man, that project sure does look challenging. I really appreciate you guys doing that. I'm just no good at literally everything to do with that project. And it's people who willfully choose to remain totally oblivious about how to change their position in life. That is why number one kingdom habit is to reorient our priorities. Be willing to change our priorities to the priorities of the king. And number two is to live by, to walk in the spirit. So Paul says that it's very obvious when you're not walking in the spirit. This is verse 17. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires. I desperately want us each to be Bible drawers. Please find a pen. Please don't draw blood on yourself and do it. Please find a pen in the back of a chair or borrow it from a neighbor. And I would love for you to underline that the Spirit gives us desires. I want you to say it with me, Georgetown. The Spirit gives us desires. They're the, and I'll finish. They're the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. This is the struggle the Galatians are caught in. I don't know if it sounds familiar to brothers and sisters of the 21st century living in a world where evidently you can just decide one day, I think I'm a girl. Psychotic behavior. Brothers and sisters, the, the desires that we're given are contrary to the desires of the sinful flesh. We're given desires by the Spirit, just as Doug said. We need someone more powerful than us to rescue us from death, to take from us our sin, to apply to us his righteousness. That person is Jesus. Now we still need someone more powerful than us to give us new desires, to take away the old desires, to, to in fact, let's see what Paul says about this. Because it's going to be even more than just take away old desires. It's normal for believers to walk in the Spirit. This is verse 18. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. He's, he's still railing against these Judaizers. And that's still true today that sometimes we may slip into those habits where we think we could do something from an old covenant and somehow attain a higher standing with God. Uh, we're on to verse 19 where he's painting a picture of what it looks like to not follow the sinful nature. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the, re the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension and division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not living a kingdom life. They're not living in alignment with the values of the kingdom established by the king. So if you're off on a trail, and, and you're off of the trail, you're out in the woods, you're off of the trail, the bramble is here, and then it's here, and it's here, and it's here, and you're all done bushwhacking. What kind of a hint is that to you? You have lost the trail. When you're driving on this road trip to the warm beach, 
and you wind up in a place where it says, welcome to Michigan, and a very large sign. It's like a super not-so-subtle hint that you are way off track. And maybe you didn't know it, but now you know it, and Paul gave a whole list of identifiers to let you know that, hey, if there's snow on the ground, the beach you're going to is going to be not warm. And you want to get right with how you get back onto the path that takes you where you want to be. Paul says there's big, giant, obvious signs that we're not walking in step with the Spirit. So pay attention to those. And then he goes on to say what it's going to look like if you're on the right track. This is verse 22 that I'm reading from and 23. So these Christians who it's normal to live by the Spirit, here's what it looks like. The Holy Spirit produces, not you and not me, but the Holy Spirit someone outside of us who indwells us, so technically I guess they're inside of us. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Read it with me, Georgetown. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. So Paul says, if you're on this track, it's going to look like this. A disaster. If you're on this track, it's going to look like this. You have a peace that passes beyond understanding. When you live a life that's filled with suffering, it's got some pain in it, you have a peace that isn't from you. It's otherworldly. When people see it, they say something right there, more powerful than that person, is at work. That's a fruit that the Holy Spirit produced. Whenever you live by the Spirit, when you walk in step with the Spirit, you will have produced in your life these fruits Peace is just one of them. Love would be another one where you decide that in the past, I really didn't want to put these people before my needs, but now something's changed in my heart that I couldn't have changed because I'm putting them before me. That's what it looks like to have love in your life. Friends, I want you to say it with me. Walking in the Holy Spirit is normal. Say it with me. Walking in the Holy Spirit is normal. Okay, we're in verse 24 and 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's lead in every part of our lives. Friends, when Rome crucified a person, what are the chances they're going to hop off of that cross and be like, cheerio. Chances are zero. When something is crucified, it is entirely, all the way, completely dead, including Jesus. He died a death he did not deserve. You and I deserved it. But because of his death and resurrection, we are imputed. We are given righteousness. And he took our sin. And he paid that debt by his death. So Roman crucifixion means definite death. And isn't it interesting now that Paul is saying that those who belong to Christ Jesus, who reorient their priorities to the priority of the king and his kingdom, they crucify the sinful nature. So how do we kill sin? Paul says you crucify it. And crucify for sure means to die. 
And there was a man named John Wesley, and he started this Wesleyan tradition, and they're Methodists, and they believe that you can be 100% all the way fully, entirely, completely sanctified and not have sin anymore. And I will not take it that far. But I will not argue with you if you're going to take it that far. I will probably point out when I see a sin, though. So I don't think that this means that you're going to be perfect for the rest of time, because then whose perfection would you not need? That is really not a hard question to answer. That is Jesus. And we can see from the entirety of Scripture that we need Jesus. So we do know that right now in your hearts and minds, and I only know this because it happens to me 5,000 times a day, the enemy is whispering lies that sound like, surely you won't die. And he just twists truth to where you have just enough to what? To not believe. Hang on to not believe. Hang on to that. Because I'm going to ask you to believe in a second. You want to know what's it mean to believe? Okay, when the enemy twists the truth, you're going to stop believing that sin can die. Can you turn on a GPS? Everybody nod your head. I mean, you can turn on a GPS or you can find someone to turn it on. Can you find your path on a path through the woods? Yeah, everybody can do that. Can you see the three simple steps on the bag of nuggies that can make your nuggies not frozen, but air fried, crispy, and delicious? We can all handle stuff like that. So you can learn to kill sin because it's not your power. It's the power of the Spirit. And so I want you guys to write in your Bibles again. I'm clearly obsessed with it. I think it's important you write this in your Bibles. There are going to be four verses that you write down, and I do actually have these right. John Piper made this simple outline, and it served me well. I am not perfect. It has just served me well. So I want to share it. This is the last thing we'll cover today. Write down these four, starting with number one, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if, I want you to say it with me, if by the who? If by the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's the, it's the Spirit, it's the power of the Spirit that puts to death our sin, not, not our power. In the same way that our power will not forgive us of sin, the Holy Spirit's power is required to kill sin. Jesus' power was required to forgive sin. Now, isn't that a relief? We should feel relieved. We should feel relieved right now. The Holy Spirit it is his power applied to our lives that is going to change this. So how does the Holy Spirit put it to death? This is your second verse you want to write down. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. This is Paul, and he's writing, And take the helmet of salvation. Because what did I say the enemy was going to do? He's going to whisper lies. And a lot of those lies start at the very root of our identity. We have been bought with a blood. There is no power that can separate us from Christ. But Satan will twist whatever it is, whatever kind of trap he's got you in, whatever kind of sin it is, that he's convinced you has made you so bad that you are going to be separated. He's going to twist that garbage and make you question your salvation. So Paul just starts out and says, just put it right on the top. You got salvation, right? Just start out knowing you are saved. And it's not by your work, it is the work of Christ on the cross. And the, I want you to read this with me, Georgetown, the sword 
of the Spirit. And what the, the Spirit has a sword? What, what in the world could that possibly be? Read it with me. Which is the Word of God. So the Spirit himself has a weapon by which he crucifies sin. And all of you guys, how do I grab that sword of the Spirit? I, it's not a thing that you or I are going to physically grab. But Paul believes that it's possible. And remember who helps us to, or who tricks us into not believe. That's the enemy. So now we're in Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. And I would just call this the way that you grip the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. So you should so far have Romans 8, chapter 13. You should have Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And you should now have Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Does he, St. Paul, right into the same Galatia, churches in Galatia, struggling with that same desire to want to be more like Jesus, but to being tricked into obeying old covenant garbage? He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or... Or is it that he does it, read it with me, by hearing with faith. And so to just understand faith really briefly, when Satan causes us to doubt and we give in to that, that's not faith. But when we believe that it's possible, not by our power, not by our work, but by our belief that there's a power outside of us at work within us, then we can say with those who saw Jesus perform his ministry that he who is in you and me is greater than he who's in the world. That's how we grip that sword of the spirit, the word of God. Now, specifically, you're thinking, man, I have, I have got a hold of nothing. Okay, so there's one more. This is the fourth. We're going to I'm going to write down the fourth one here, and, and I think we have a phenomenal example of someone who's done this well so that we can do it well, and we'll find this person in Matthew chapter 4. How is it that you grip a sword? How is it that you know so well a weapon that is used by the Spirit, not by you, but how is it that you hold on to something like that and actually put it into play? Well, you're going to believe, and you're going to hear the Word of God with faith that it's functional through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be able to do that more and more effectively as you internalize the Word of God. What does it mean to internalize? That's why we're in Matthew chapter 4. It's our last reference. You can see now, church, why I want you so desperately to write these notes in your Bible. This is the Word of God. It's living and active, and it is your field notes. And if you don't have it, you are kind of powerless. I want you to make these notes. It is a weapon against powers of darkness, but only when it's yielded in faith and intelligently. So chapter four of Matthew, and I think I'm reading from verse three, and this is the temptation of Jesus where who is it that leads Jesus into temptation? It is the Holy Spirit. 
And the tempter came and said to him, that's Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, this is Jesus speaking, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what is it that he's quoting there to the enemy, to the one that is going to cause doubt? He is quoting scripture. So there's an example of someone who's internalized this weapon, this scripture, this sword that is wielded by the Holy Spirit on our behalf because we don't have the power. But when we have the faith that the one with the power is alive and at work within you and me, then like Paul said, we can crucify sin by nailing it to the cross. Then you and I can walk in step with the Spirit, but only insofar as we are ready to reorient our priorities to that of the King, which means that we're repenting continuously. I don't think it's an accident that some of you are here today. I think that some of you have been drawn to a body of faith, and I can't brag about anything that anyone here has done, but I can say that I've seen God at work in the lives of people just like me, probably a lot like you, and the work that he does is the work that we describe today. It's the reorienting of our priorities. It is the changing of our heart's desire to be after the things his heart desires. If that's something like what you're looking for, and you've maybe already become a follower of Jesus, we'd love to talk to you at our Next Steps booth in the back. You can talk to me in the front. If you've never said, you know, I have to make Christ my Lord and Savior, I know I can't handle my sin. Today's the day for you to come talk to me about that. I invite you to come as we sing. Father God, we're so grateful for the gift of your word, your body, the church, your Holy Spirit alive and at work within each of us to transform us into the likeness of your son Jesus. Father, that you would receive glory Father, that your mission would be carried out by your body, this church, that the world would know the great love that you have for us, the clear path that you've made for us to have life eternal and life right now abundantly. Father, I pray that you would use this church to show just those things to this community, that you are good. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.